Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Tim Porter, one of the pastors here at Faith Community. I am the other Tim. And uh, if you're new to Faith Community, we have two Pastor Tims who do the teaching on Sunday morning, and that is by design. So if anybody comes up and says, hey, I didn't like what you said, we can say, that may have been the other Tim. Uh, But no, uh, it's so good to be together online. Thank you so much for joining us this morning as well. Uh, If you're new to Faith Community, I'm really glad that you're here because we are, we just started a new series talking about what it means for us as a church to be a to be a Christ-centered community. Our vision as a church is that through the Holy Spirit leading and empowering us, we would, as a group, as people, display Jesus' welcoming and attractive and reconciling presence in Christ-centered community that thousands more would experience Jesus in a gospel-inspired life. And one of the questions that comes, I mean, that's a mouthful, uh, but one of the questions that comes with a vision like that as a church is, well, what does it mean to be a Christ-centered community? What does that really look like? What are, how are we going to live if we're a Christ-centered community? And so we've had this series called Made for This Moment. And made for, the moment, made for This Moment means that the church was made for moments like this, and moments like this were made for the church, so that we could really truly be everything that Jesus has called and is working in us to be. A couple weeks ago, the first sermon um, was addressing that for us to be a Christ-centered community, we're going to experience and express Jesus' heart of compassion. Last week, if you're here, I hope you were here. If you haven't heard last week's sermon, please go listen to last week's sermon. It is beautiful. But if we're going to be a Christ-centered community, if we're going to be a Christ-centered community, we're going to need to experience and then also express the mercy of God <clears throat> together. And today, talking about to be a Christ-centered community means that we are a community of hope, a community of hope in an age of cynicism. The church was made for times like this. Many authors, if you just Google a little bit, many authors are saying this age is the age of cynicism. And if you're cynical like me, you might be wondering, oh, is that really true or not? I don't know about that. <laughs> Welcome, if you're a cynic. But we might joke about cynicism, but cynicism, you need to know this, cynicism is deadly. It's deadly. It's deadly. And when I talk about cynicism in this sermon, I'm not talking about the philosophical tradition that goes back to the ancients and trying to figure out life in that kind of way. I'm talking about a psychological cynicism, one that... One where we become more and more deadened to life. The first words recorded in the Bible coming from the lips of Satan were words of cynicism. Did God really say? In other words, Satan saying, in asking that question, God has a hidden motive in restricting you from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But who had the double motive there? Cynicism is deadly, and it is on the rise, and it makes sense in many ways just because our culture offers to us a worldview without a lot of hope into it. Cynicism is a defense mechanism that we use to handle the pain 
of our lives and the disappointment of our lives. Cynicism is a defensive posture that we can take to protect ourselves from disappointments or from being taken advantage of. We're always looking for the cloud in the silver lining. We're always looking for the hidden motive. We're always critical. But this is a numbness towards life and it creates a distance. Paul Miller in his book describes cynicism this way, that it's a creeping bitterness that deadens and destroys our own spirit. We bring that critical spirit into a community and it spreads like gangrene. Now I was thinking I was gonna talk about hope in a cynical age with the cynicism being out there. And God kindly, not audibly, but just in the way that he does with me when he's speaking to me on Tuesday morning as I'm reading my Bible, is like, Tim, before we talk about the cynicism out there, let's talk about the cynicism in here. I employ cynicism to try to handle the disappointments of my life as well. But Jesus offers us something better. He offers us something called hope. And hope, when we catch it, actually, when we catch it and live it out, cynicism starts to shrivel up on the vine. And the hope that Jesus offers us is not a hope that is distant and avoids the difficulties and problems and pains in life. Following Jesus, you need to know this because some people will tell you that he actually does, but following Jesus will not make you immune to the problems of life or the pain in life. Our world is so broken, we are so broken, that if you live long enough, no matter if you're a Christian or not, if you live long enough, you will suffer. You will. Christians will and do experience chronic, unexpected, traumatic, traumatic, tragic, sudden, increasing pain and loss and suffering in life. And Jesus doesn't isolate us from the pain. So the hope that Jesus offers isn't a hope that, oh, I can avoid the pain if I follow Jesus. No, 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 no. It's a hope that actually grows in the midst of pain. And following Jesus, you need to know too, following Jesus will bring pain into your life. I remember being in India long, 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 uh, many years ago, and uh, Cassidy McLaughlin was speaking in front of uh, a group of pastors and wives and uh, disciples in this church, and it was beautiful what she did. She started by saying, Jesus offers us many promises. I'll be with you, and I love you, and all this sort of thing. But she also, he, she also said, he offers this one promise that we tend to not take too, too much to heart, which is, um, you will have trouble in this world. Now, those of you who have little promise card packs and you're trying to learn the is that one of the promises that you put in there? Because Jesus is level setting us. He's being brutally honest. Following Jesus actually brings more pain into your life and it does bring more pain into your life because also when we start to have Jesus' perspective on the world and what's going on in other people's lives, you will feel more pain because Jesus' heart was one of pain. Compassion is there because of pain. What you see going on around you. So today we're gonna look at hope. The kind of hope that Jesus gives, a realistic hope. 
that will isolate us from cynicism and help us to soak in and get everything that God wants us to get out of the difficulties of life until we see him face to face. Jesus gives us real resources. Today we're learning from a passage in the book of Romans, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome in the first century. We're going to look at Romans 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning. If you don't have your own Bible or your own Bible app, you can use one of the ones in front of us. It'll also be on the screens. It's found on page 942 and the Bible's in front of you if you'd like to read on. And this is really important. The reason why we have, uh, we ask you to have your Bible out in front of you at some point in time is that these are not my thoughts. These aren't Prince's thoughts, Tim Prince's thoughts. These aren't our thoughts. We're, we're saying these are God's thoughts. This is what God thinks. That's, for the, that's what really matters. And he gives us the wisdom and the resources to handle the difficulties in life. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have the privilege of teaching high schoolers on Monday mornings at a homeschool co-op here in the area. And the course that I'm teaching, the first part of the course that I'm teaching them is to pay attention to some of the intuitions that we have as human beings as a, as a sign that there is a God who is really there. For example, we all need meaning. We all need purpose. We all need a certain kind of identity. And one of the things that we need as human beings is hope. We are, as human beings, irreducibly hope-based creatures. And a couple weeks ago, when we were tackling the subject of hope and seeking to apply it to our lives, uh, one of the students came in about 10 to 15 minutes late. We were wondering what was going on, and he hadn't texted anybody, which is totally fine, but he came in about 10 to 15 minutes late, and come to find out, his truck had broken down. But he got it started again, and he was able to get it. And then this is what he said. It was beautiful. Yeah, my truck broke down. I got it going again. This is really good, and it's okay. I'm getting a new one tomorrow. Now, me being a teacher and didn't want to pass up a teachable moment, I'm like, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. This is a great example. Let's dissect his statement here just for a second. Disappointment. My truck broke down. I did get it fixed, though, or it started working again. But that's okay. I'm getting a new one tomorrow. What was he doing? He was managing the disappointment in life based on hope. I'm getting a new truck tomorrow. It's okay. If this one breaks down again, it's all right. I'm getting a new one tomorrow. You and I do that all the time. We're barely conscious of it. We do that all the time. You and I have hopes for this day that are helping us get through the difficulties of this day. We're constantly doing this. One of your difficulties today might be my sermon right now. And you're thinking, that's okay. The Vikings play tomorrow night. You're going to be disappointed again. No, anyway. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> if you're a Vikings fan, we love you. Welcome to Christ Center Community. We are filled with hope and mercy and compassion. 
and we pray that you become a Packer fan. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but we're constantly doing that. We're constantly hope-based creatures. You and I are getting through difficulties and pain, looking into the future and seeing that it will at least be relieved at some point in time or come to an end. This is only a season that I'm going on vacation. It's constant. It's constant. The downside, and this is what starts to create cynicism, is that the downside is all the different hopes that we have that we're living by to try to get through the promises, are, they're not guaranteed. You might be putting your hope in a vacation that's going to be wonderful and catastrophe happens. You can't stop it from happening. And what Jesus offers us is a hope that helps us endure anything. A hope that can face anything. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 2. He says something really important that we rejoice in, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now there's two things I need to do to clarify what Paul's talking about here because we approach them in a little bit different direction. Hope. We use the word hope typically in a wishful thinking kind of way. In a wishful thinking kind of way. Okay, so uh, as a pastor, I've been a pastor since 2001, so it's a long time, and I have been involved with uh, countless couples helping them plan weddings, and it's one of, the, one of the great privileges that my wife and I have of doing premarital counseling. Now we're doing it as parents. We're helping, uh, we're helping our son and future daughter-in-law plan a wedding, and they want to have a wedding that's outside. That's a big no-no in my book, <laughs> right? But it's, I love them, and every time I get to be a part of them, it's great. But, you know, we have this hope that on the day of the wedding, it won't rain. And so we plan, because we know it could rain, we plan for a contingency just in case it does. Murphy's Law, right? So thankfully, they found a venue. They found a venue where they can have it outdoors, and if it does rain, it can still, we can still get the beauty and the experience of being outdoors. It's awesome. It's a great situation. But we use hope in that kind of way. We hope it won't rain, but just in case it does, we'll get a contingency plan. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's not using it in that kind of way. It's saying the hope is fixed. It will happen. There's no need for a contingency plan. You're all in. And there's nothing in creation, there's nothing in all the world that can stop this hope from happening. It's a fixed confidence. See the difference? Are you living with that kind of hope this morning? A fixed confidence that your future is settled and that nothing in the world can stop it from coming into being. Now, Paul elaborates even more. He uses this phrase here that we, have, we rejoice in this hope, this hope of the glory of God. Now, what does that mean? Now, Paul talks about this in other places. The hope of the glory of God is, yes, definitely, that one day we will see God face to face in all of his beauty and all of his splendor, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to take your breath away. True. But when Paul is using this phrase, glory of God, and hope in the glory of God here, he's introducing to us, he's using this shorthand kind of phrase to introduce to us something that's a strong teaching in, verses, in chapters 5 through 8. And that hope in the glory of God is that you and I will participate in the glory of God. In other words, we will become like Jesus and be transformed 
transformed to look like Jesus, another word for this is glorified. You're gonna be transformed, I'm gonna be transformed. Character, body, everything. This is some places where Paul is going, and if you want to flip over to Romans 8, you can do that. Just write these down, Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, and then verse 30. Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God is in us, telling us things about ourselves, that if we suffer with Jesus, we will also be glorified with Jesus. He also says in verse 30 that those whom he predestined, that is he, that is God, he called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. To be glorified as a human being is to be absolutely transformed from the inside out, every molecule of your body, every cell of your body completely transformed to be like Jesus. Jesus lived a human life, he was a human being, more than a human being, he was God who is a human being. He died like we die, and he rose again from the dead. And then he's coming again. And the Bible, the grand hope of the Bible is that you and I, though we die, though we will go, we will decompose, we will become worm food, we will be dust. We will one day be transformed to the same degree of beauty and power and brilliance that he is right now. That's the hope that's coming. And nothing in all creation can stop it. You will be beautified. You will be beautified, beautified in such a way because of your relationship with Jesus and what he's done for you and your trust in him that if you were to show up right here, right now, and what you will be like, we would all be tempted to bow down and worship you. That's how beautiful you're going to be. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see your future that way? Is that the kind of way, is that the kind of lens in which you view your tomorrow? That tomorrow, no matter what happens, I'm getting one day closer to beautification, glorification honest question. Now some of you might be going, I've never heard of this before. I'm sorry. Because Jesus offers us more than, which is a big deal, more than forgiveness of sins. He offers us a complete and utter full transformation. A body, this body, your body, that will never die again resurrected from the dead. A hope that death can't even stop because death's been factored into the equation. If this is new to you and you want to talk more about who Jesus is and what the life that he offers, not only here but in the days to come, please come up and talk to me right after the service. Send me an email. I would love to talk to you more about who Jesus really is and the power of the hope that he brings in the darkest of days. Now, to be a community of hope means that we don't even, it's not only that we take on this kind of hope, that we see ourselves as we're going somewhere, 
We're going to glorification. We're going to transformation. We're going somewhere. But we also see our neighbors and our friends, our missional community members, and our parents, our children, our spouse in the same kind of way. C.S. Lewis says this in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He said, it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you may one day that you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another all of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics. There are nor no ordinary people. You as a human being have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, civilizations, these are mortal, they're, they're passing away. But it is with immortals that we joke with immortals that we work, with immortals that we marry, with immortals that we snub and exploit. We are always interacting with immortals. Immortals who will one day be horrific or everlasting in splendor. And this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn, like, oh, you're an immortal, I gotta take you seriously, no. It's like we take somebody so seriously as an immortal that we delight in them and we play with one another. We have great kind of merriment, why? Because we know that the, any, any kind of joy that we experience in this life is just nothing but a reflection of what's to come. That's the hope that Paul's talking about. And if we're gonna be devoted to community with one another, and we're gonna be a community of hope, as Jesus, I think, wants us to be a community of hope, and the Spirit is leading us to do that, we extend to everyone that we're interacting with that same kind of reality that we are all either heading for great glorification or great horrification. So it means to be a community of hope when you argue with your spouse, are you arguing as with an immortal person where this conflict is gonna help us look more like Jesus together? When you have a disagreement in missional community because not everybody agrees on the same things, are you handling that conflict in a way that shows that you're paying attention, that you're in conflict with an immortal? It's hope. The starting point for a community of hope is knowing that we are all broken, contradictory, sinful, selfish, and full of pride and all kinds of mixed motives. See, in one sense, cynicism is super easy because there's all kinds of evidence for, for why we should be cynical. Everybody's got mixed motives. So it's easy to point them out. Hope, though, means that you're looking for the hand of God in the life of somebody else and seeing what God is doing. Now this hope that we're talking about is not mere optimism or wishful thinking. 
It is a real fixed confidence in the goodness and the power of God to do what he said that he's going to do. And Paul is saying here in this passage that if we really rejoice in this kind of hope, it changes how we handle suffering and pain and loss in this life. Now, before I read what Paul says that we get to do in the midst of difficulty, I just want to remind you a little bit of who Paul is and what he went through, or maybe introduce you to Paul. He is a first follower of Jesus, and he endured all kinds of difficulties. In 2 Corinthians 11, he writes this about, this is his resume. He said, five times I received from the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. In other words, five times he was brought to the point of death and just to the point and then left to heal. Three times I was beaten with rods and once I was stoned with rocks. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now I want to read you his resume because this is not, I've, Tim Porter has not experienced any of those things. So these are his ideas. This is what he's learned through Jesus and hope and how hope helps him manage all the difficulties that he's gone through in life. And this is just scratching the surface. And what he says in verse three is that this is what we do if we've got the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now again, this is not some kind of Pollyannish, optimistic thinking. When Paul talks about rejoicing in sufferings, he means alongside of it that rejoicing with sufferings coexists with some of the deepest, darkest psalms of pain in the book of Psalms. Paul says that we grieve and we grieve with hope, but we still grieve. And so when Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, he's not trying to minimize the suffering. He's not trying to say, oh, just put on these rose-covered glasses. Everything's going to be okay. No, he still wants us to cry out to God, to lament and to weep and to talk about how hard the pain is. Rejoicing in sufferings does not put any of that aside, but experiences hope in the midst of crying out to God. The Bible gives us both intellectual resources for handling the pain in our life, and it gives us emotional resources for handling the pain in our life. This passage is more of an intellectual resource, but we need both. So last year, 2010, I preached a sermon on talking to God when you're angry and grieving. Please listen to that as well. It's on our website, July 10. Because we need both intellectual resources to reframe our pain and understand, but also emotional resources, and the Bible's filled with them, about grieving and calling out. 
But what Paul is telling us here is he's trying to reframe how we view the pain and the difficulty that we go through in life. And it could be very small, small lowercase trauma to significant trauma. And one of the reasons I mention this is that I'm in the company of people here that have experienced deep trauma. They live with PTSD daily and it is hard and I don't want for a moment minimize any of that. But hope, as Paul sees it, reframes our experience of pain. Doesn't take the experience away. And the reason why Paul can talk like this is that Paul knows something about Jesus, remembers something about Jesus that we discovered again in, in our series on Hebrews, Hebrews chapter five, verse eight is that Jesus, who is perfect, the author says he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. And you and I learn obedience to the things that we suffer. And so Paul says, this is, the, this is what we rejoice in, is that we, we know something, that when we encounter difficulty and suffering in life, we know something, that is that it's not meaningless, it's not purposeless, is that God is doing something in the pain and in the difficulty, and he tells us what it is at the very least. Verses three and four, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. How does this work? God specializes in creating the character of Jesus in us when we endure difficulty with the hope that one day we're gonna be transformed. He specializes. How many of you have like on artwork or uh, maybe you've got it memorized, you're trying to memorize it, the, the fruit of the spirit from Galatians 5 or maybe you've got some artwork hanging in the wall that's fruit of the spirit. Anybody got that? I'm not gonna call you out, it's okay. No, anybody? Okay, so the fruit of the spirit, okay, thank you. Yep, um, I see that hand. Uh, um, fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5. And through the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, or self-control, faithfulness. I had this dawning moment a few years ago when I realized that, oh great, all the fruit of the Spirit is worked out and formed in us through pain. There's no other way around it. Fruit of the Spirit is love. Love grows. We have the potential to grow love when? When we are sinned against, when we are hurt, when we are harmed. It's easy to love somebody who's easy to love. It requires the spirit to love someone who harms us. Joy. It's easy to be happy and mistake that for joy when things are going well. But when things are falling apart, joy starts to grow because joy is something different than circumstance. Gentleness starts to grow when we experience the harsh realities of the world and Jesus teaches us another way and how to respond. The fruit of the Spirit grows in the fertilizer of suffering. There's no other way around it. 
No other way around it. So that's the kind of character that Jesus is working in us. And so what that means is that right here, right now, we have the opportunity to grow in looking like Jesus from the inside out. Though our bodies are wasting away and our, our minds are falling apart and all that kind of stuff, our character can grow. In other words, glorification starts now. It'll be perfected when we see Jesus face to face, but right now it's starting to work out. And so how this works for Paul and how what he's trying to show us is that if you say yes to Jesus, you start to follow Jesus, he's going to work his character into you. And no matter what comes into your life, he has the opportunity and the power to work his character into you as you with hope live. And the more that you experience growing to look like Jesus in his character, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, humility and love, your hope starts to grow because you realize Jesus really is true because the only way that I could actually look like this is if God is at work in my life. That's why character produces hope. How we can live this out as a Christ-centered community is that we can do a far better job of paying attention not to the brokenness in other people's lives, not to the contradictions in other people's lives, not to the sin in other people's lives, which is important to do. But we're also paying attention to and giving voice to the character of Jesus in somebody else's life. A friend of mine who's an author, a pastor over in the Twin Cities, his man's name's Sam Crabtree, probably one of the most hopeful, gregarious, delightful human beings I've ever met. And he wrote a book called Practicing Affirmation. And he wrote this book because he asked the question, why do so many of our relationships suffer from alienation, indifference, and even hostility? And he said a lot of the time that comes because we are not encouraging one another with what we see about the work of God in their lives. And so one of the things he says is that this is a way that you and I can practice affirmation. We can be a hope-filled community. Is that we can name the character of Jesus that we're seeing being worked out in somebody else's life. I thank God that you are growing in gentleness. You've been through a lot. I've been praying that God changes your circumstances, but I see that God is actually changing you in your circumstances. I see gentleness. I see the gentleness of Jesus in you. About a month or so ago, my wife and I were preparing to teach on humility at the marriage, at the marriage retreat, bringing, living out humility in marriage. It's a weird thing to talk about humility because no one's got it figured out, except for Jesus. But as we were preparing, one of the books that we read together was by um, Gavin Ortland. It's called um, Humility, and it's about self-forgetfulness. And my wife, out of nowhere, I wasn't fishing for this or anything like that, out of nowhere, as we were talking about the topic and talking about the book, she just said, I see, in the last few years, as you've walked through some difficult things, I see you handling those with humility, just like he talks about here. Now it's a dangerous thing to talk to people about me being humble, okay? <laughs> and I see all the pride, and the Spirit of God sees even more pride in me than I even know about. And my family can tell you about all the other pride, too. But to hear my wife, who knows me the best out of anybody else in, human, uh, in the human race, say to me, I see humility in you, that built my hope. Why? Because the only way that I can grow in humility is if what God says is true 
that he is actually going to grow me in humility. And it makes me want to pursue God even more. That's how we can be a community of hope. Saying to one another, this is what I see in you. Lastly, there's an experience that you and I can have in the midst of difficulty and pain that can only be described until it's experienced. So I'm gonna try to experience, I'm gonna try to describe what the Spirit wants to do in you, but I can't make it happen. And the Spirit of God wants to create in you a sense of the love of God even when all hell could be breaking loose in your life. This is what Paul says in verse five. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One of the things that this means is that the moment you and I say yes to Jesus, we belong to him, and we say we, we wanna uh, receive Jesus and follow him, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives in a unique way, and that Holy Spirit comes into our lives never to leave us. And that Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes into our lives, gets so close, so personal, he gets to the very core of the core of our human, of our human heart, the very causal center of our being. The Holy Spirit is closer to you than you are closer to you. And the Holy Spirit will never let you go through something alone. So no matter what you go through in life, you are never alone, even if you feel alone and God is distant, he is right there with you, in you, going through this. But then one of the, spirit, one of the things that the Spirit loves to do, and I don't think we take as much advantage of it and ask for it as much as he loves to do it, which is he loves to comfort us over and over and over again in the depths of our hearts with a reminder and a real sense that you are dearly and deeply loved by God. A few hundred years ago, a man named John Owen wrote a book called Communion with God. And he paid attention to the scriptures about how the spirit is described. And the spirit loves to give comfort and the spirit loves to give consolation and the spirit loves to speak to us in our very core. You are loved by God, even when it feels like there's no love out there. It's one of the things that we can do as a community of hope is to be praying for one another and praying for ourselves, Holy Spirit, based on this passage, I'm gonna ask you to speak to my heart the love of God over and over and over again because I don't see it around me. But I wanna feel it in me. And the Spirit of God loves to do that. Loves to do that. Now I am a cynic And so I like to look for worst case scenarios to see if this stuff actually works itself out. And this is one of the reasons why I love to tell the story of Corey Ten Boom. I'm gonna truncate it here. Corey Ten Boom survived Ravensbrook, which is a Nazi death camp. She went through horror after horror after horror after horror. She lost her father, Casper. She lost her best friend and sister, Betsy. She was in situations where she was Um, where she was giving thanks along with her sister Betsy for the fleas in her bed so the Nazi guards would leave them alone. 
And having gone through all of that, enduring all of that, she said, there is no pit so deep that God's love isn't deeper still. You and I, in the midst of deep pits, can actually experience the love of God that's different from circumstances so that we know that it's real. And he loves to do it. As a community of hope, pray that for yourself. And pray that for your family. Pray that for your friends. I wanna pray for us right now. I invite you to stand. As I pray for us and then we're gonna continue singing to God and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Father, thank you for your love for us. We have never known a day of our existence where you did not love us. Your love is a love that we cannot earn. It's a love that you set upon us. Jesus, thank you for your grace. It's because of your life and your death in our place that we can stand with confidence before you in grace. Having a relationship with you that we didn't earn and nothing can take away. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would please work in us in such a way that you would speak to all of our hearts online or in the room. Speak the love of God into our hearts. Dispel cynicism. Make us a people of deep and abiding hope. That's attractive, welcoming, and reconciling. Where there are wounds in this room, would you please heal? And assure us even that if the, he, if the wounds aren't healed in this life, one day they will be. We entrust ourselves to your care. In Jesus' name, amen.